Hello and greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters. We're so glad that you've joined us today. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. It is written the beginning of the book of Habakkuk. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Yahweh, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Yahweh, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net, and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So we see there the beginning of what is called the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw in chapter 1 and verse 1. We don't know much of anything about Habakkuk beyond what we read in the book bearing his name. We're not even sure what his name means. It could derive from an Akkadian term for a fragrant plant, or it could involve the Hebrew word for embracing. If we accept the surface meaning of Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 6, that the Chaldeans are coming, that he's talking about the Chaldeans and not using it as a reference to somebody else, uh, we can conclude that Habakkuk is being warned about this Chaldean Babylonian invasion of Judah, and therefore is probably living somewhere toward the end of the 7th century, the beginning of the 6th century before Jesus, uh, probably around the days of King Josiah at the latest. Now, in the apocryphal story of Bel and the Dragon, which is part of the additions to Daniel in the Greek New, uh, Old Testament, uh, there's this interesting story where uh, Habakkuk and Judah's commission to divinely uh, go and give Daniel food in Babylon. 
And it, sh- it shows that there's certainly uh, some kind of memory going on of Daniel Habakkuk being contemporary. That story is mostly not historical. Uh, there's, we don't know where it came from, but it shows that people are thinking about the associations and these connections. So that's all we really know for certain is what we can get from this burden or oracle that Habakkuk sees. And what we can conclude is that he is a prophet who is conversant in psalmody, and he warns Judah about the imminent danger of the Chaldean invasion and why they need to practice righteousness. And so we begin with uh, what's often called Habakkuk's first complaint. We can deduce this from verses 2 through 4, where this he's crying out to Yahweh, and he says, how can you allow this to happen? And he's talking about what we gather is what's going on in Judah. He's crying out for help. God's not hearing him. He's crying out violence. God's not rescuing. Uh, He sees sin all day. Uh, There's destruction and violence. The law is paralyzed. Justice doesn't go forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted. Now maybe for the fact uh, Habakkuk's being a little hyperbolic, but uh, we can certainly see this is a very bad situation, a dire situation, and it needs some kind of correction. So Habakkuk sees all of this wickedness, and he wants to know, where are you? Why are you allowing all this to happen? And from verses about 5 through 11, we gather is Yahweh's first response, because now it's not an appeal to Yahweh, uh, but the person speaking is acting like he's going to do something. And so that uh, seems to be God. And he's, he's saying that something, that Yahweh's seen this. He's, he's making it clear, and, and, the, and there is going to be a response. It's just not the kind of response that Habakkuk probably wanted to hear. Uh, that Habakkuk should look and see that God is doing something that he would not believe if told. An unbelievable work. He's going to raise up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nations, and they're going to march forth and conquer lands in verses 5 and 6. Now the Chaldeans, who are the Chaldeans? You hear this here in many other places. Uh, the Chaldeans uh, are coming from Babylon. And you might wonder, say, well, if they're from Babylon, why don't we just call them Babylonians? Well, Chaldean is an ethnic descriptor. Uh, it's an ethnicity, uh, because in biblical times, Babylon, the city, uh, was ruled over by different cultures, different uh, ethnic nations. Uh, the Amorites at times, the Kassites at times, and at the, at the what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire is uh, Chaldeans, uh, generally uh, waves of uh, migrants or invasions from the desert areas into the cities. Uh, we can look at a parallel. For instance, Jerusalem was once a Jebusite city. Then David and his men conquered it in 2 Samuel 5, and then it became a Judean city, an Israelite city. Uh, Gaza was a Canaanite city. Then it became a Judean city for a while in Judges chapter 1, verse 18. And then it was eventually overrun and taken over by the Philistines and became a Philistine city. So that's why a lot of times the biblical authors are very precise in, in not only identifying a given city, but the ethnic background of the people who are currently, if nothing else, ruling over the city. And that is why we have this emphasis on the Chaldeans. And so from verses... 7 through 11, we get this very uh, terrifying and paralyzing description of these Chaldeans. They're terrible, dreadful. They appear just and dignified. Their horses are fast and fierce, and they're ready to devour. They look for violence. They press on ahead. They're gathering captives like 
dust. They scoff at kings and they t- pile up earth and take it. A very important ancient thing uh, that to demonstrate that you have subjugated a land. You take some of its dirt, you put it in a vial, and you take it back with you to show that, yes, you are in control of them because you have their dirt. They sweep people away. Yes, they're guilty men. Their might is their god. And where a lot of times you could use that as a boast over them, they actually have might. They they worship it. They serve it. They're living by it. They live by the power they have to control their people. And it's been given over to them. And and so this this is a very horrible, awful thing. And beginning in verse... 12, and, and through chapter 2 and verse 1, uh, again, we, we, we seem to have Habakkuk's response. Verse 12, he calls it Yahweh my God. Therefore, uh, that now Habakkuk speaking, and Habakkuk hears us and responds. He calls Yahweh the one from everlasting, his God, the Holy One. Now we have a, a textual variant of some importance here in verse 12. Uh, in the English Standard Version, it says, We shall not die. And we there is the way the Masoretic text reads. And we shall not die, therefore, is a demonstration of confidence that, yes, even if God comes and has, an over, has the Chaldeans overrun, that there will be a remnant. Uh, some versions, uh, the Greek and, and other ones, read, you shall not die. And this is a more rabbinic favorite interpretation, uh, where this whole verse is talking not about the, at all about the condition of God's people, but all about who God is and the nature uh, of God. So, uh, it's, most expositors are in agreement that we is, is, the, is the word that Habakkuk is using. Uh, seems to make the most sense in context, and so we will follow that. But it's, it, it is, that's out there that it's you. It could be just a meditation on the nature of God. And, and the reason for this is that uh, in, at the end of verse 12, Habakkuk understands what God is doing. You have ordained them as a judgment. You have established them for reproof. Okay, so this horrible, nasty army is going to be a, a judgment upon the people of God, yes. Uh, but it's not going to be the end of them. But God, he's got some questions about this. A lot of times people want to take verse 13, the least first half, and kind of just talk about uh, and, and make conclusions about the idea of God as having pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And we've got to be very careful about that, because some people could take that in an absolute way, in a way the prophet does not imagine. Uh, obviously, he's looking upon Israel. Israel has been doing this wrong. He, he clearly sees sin happening. So Habakkuk's not saying that God literally actually cannot see bad things happen, but instead is just emphasizing God's holiness and purity, that he is so pure and holy that it is just a terrible thing for him even to see wrong. And so if that's true, and, and, and Habakkuk believes it's true, how then can God stomach the idea that a more sinful nation is going to be the means by which judgment is accomplished on a, on a more righteous nation here? So it's interesting that we've we've just heard Habakkuk in the beginning of his com- first complaint uh, deride his fellow Israelites and, and people of Judah as as these terrible sinners, but now he's calling them uh, the man more righteous uh, because it's not necessarily inconsistent because Habakkuk's not saying uh, that this guy is great; he's just simply more righteous than the one uh, that's coming after him. So all is necessary is for the Judeans to be more righteous than the Chaldeans, which is probably imaginable. 
And so he then continues in verses 14 through 17 after asking this question. Now he's got a second kind of conundrum. And he, he established this conundrum in this illustration, primarily about fish and fishing. So man is a fish of the sea. Uh, and you've got this guy who's a fisherman, and so he's he, the fisherman goes and, and, and catches fish with a hook, catches fish with his net. He gathers these fish in his net, he's happy, he then bows down to the net, as if the net is a god that has provided him with this food. And he lives in luxury because of it. And and so Habakkuk has two questions about it. First of all, is he to keep on emptying his net and... and and merciless to killing nations forever. He kind of starts dropping the metaphor uh, that the people here, he is the Chaldeans. Uh, the Chaldeans, are they going to keep destroying these nations? Is, is this just going to keep happening uh, where the Chaldeans is going to destroy the whole earth? And and that idea of bowing down to the dragnet, that be, making their might their God, that if Yahweh allows the Chaldeans to do this, the Chaldeans are going to honor their gods. They're going to say, ah, <laughs> their God cannot deliver them out of our hands. Marduk is great, Yahweh is not. Uh, Habakkuk sees clearly that's what's going to happen. So how can God allow this? How can God allow this nasty pagan nation to come and get glory over the people of God? How can God be allow that to happen and, and, since he is so pure and holy? And how can God allow uh, his glory to be given to another? How can God allow the nations to vaunt against him and his people uh, as they're going to do? And so we're left here at the beginning of chapter 2, kind of a hinge here at this passage, where Habakkuk's going to take the stand at the watchpost. He's going to look to see God's answer and how Habakkuk will answer in response, presuming that there will be a response. And so this is the section uh, that we have considered today. Uh, and so what can we see out of this? Well, we see first God's astonishing work. That you know, Habakkuk sees immorality in Judah. And there's no doubt about it. There's, there's violence, there's no justice, increase of wickedness. God had noticed. Uh, God's going to have a solution, though, that Habakkuk doesn't want to hear. That Judah was going to be punished for their iniquity. That their city and temple were going to be destroyed. Thousands would perish and the rest would be exiled that Judah will be completely humiliated by this. And so Habakkuk first learns an important lesson, that you need to be careful what you wish for. Uh, and interestingly, uh, Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5 will end up being used by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13 when he's preaching to the Jews of Antioch Pisidia in the synagogue. He says in verse 40, Beware therefore lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And that's how he ends his sermon there about Jesus and, and salvation in his name, uh, warning about what the prophets uh, had said, and the prophet there is Habakkuk. And as Christians, we need to be concerned about the work that God might be doing among his people to this day. Because it's very important to notice this, and one of these things we have to keep reminding ourselves. Yes, Habakkuk is talking to the nation of Israel a nation, but the idea is that the nation of Israel is a people of God. He is speaking about the people of God and their wickedness, and Yahweh is talking about bringing this foreign oppressive power against the people of God. That God chastened and humiliated his people through the work of a pagan nation. And we have to ask ourselves, are we living in a way that would bring forth a similar condemnation? 
That's why there are passages in the New Testament, like Romans 11, 11 through 24, where Paul talks about the fact that you look at the people of God like an olive tree. There are the native olive tree branches. But with olive trees, you can do a particular procedure. You can graft in branches from another olive tree. And so he speaks about Jews broken off in unbelief and Gentiles who are grafted in to the tree. And then he turns and says, well, wait a second. If God was willing to break off those branches, it will he not be willing to break you off as well? And God wants to be able to regraft in the branches that were broken. So there's a warning there. And that's the same warning Hebrews 10, 26 or 31, where the Hebrew author warns very strongly about those who, uh, re- who sin w- without repentance. Um, that there's no forgiveness for that. That those who participate in such things have a crucified the Son of God afresh, and uh, that condemnation awaits. And that's why we have to always ask the question, should we expect to receive any better treatment as Christians than the people of God in the past received when they sinned. And so that's something that we should be concerned about. uh, And recognize that just because we're Christians doesn't mean we get away with sin. Likewise, we also need to be careful about what uh, we wish for. Um, We can and should pray and lament about the sins around us uh, to God. But we should not think that God somehow hasn't noticed And we need to be careful about asking about God's judgment to be brought down upon us or upon the nation in which we live. Uh, Very easy to do that, Uh, perhaps even especially in current circumstances where a lot of cultural indicators are moving away from the teachings of God and Christ as revealed in Scripture. But we need to be very careful because as Amos warned the people in Amos 5, 18-24, why do you desire the day of Yahweh? The day of Yahweh is not light, it is darkness. It is like a series of very unfortunate events. It's very terrifying and horrible. Uh, When Israel, the kingdom, experienced the day of Yahweh, uh, the Assyrians came through, destroyed their nation, and exiled them. When Judah experienced the day of Yahweh, they were almost entirely wiped out. Uh, and and most of the people exiled. That's not something you want to see. You don't really want to see uh, a day of judgment, a day of Yahweh executed uh, upon those around you. It's a very disturbing, horrible, terrible situation. And that's why we need to be very thankful for God's continual kindness, grace, mercy, and patience. It's one thing to ask for the return of the Lord Jesus and end all of this. That's that's something we see in you know, Second Corinthians and plenty of other places in Scripture that we should be asking for and seeking to hasten in Second Peter chapter three. It's quite another to uh, blithely ask God to bring judgment down upon a nation for their sins, because that may be necessary. It may be just, uh, but it's got a lot of awful consequences you probably haven't thought of, and it's worth uh, deliberating if you want to see and have to experience those types of consequences. The other thing that we see here in Habakkuk is that he's a faithful Israelite. He believes that Yahweh is his God, that Yahweh is a holy one. He sees that God is very holy and righteous. And he believes in God's provision and his covenant loyalty toward his people. We see that in Habakkuk 1, 12-13. He recognizes as well that God has set about this plan, that he's going to use the Chaldeans as his instrument to humiliate and judge Judah, uh, the people of God, for their transgressions. But he has a hard time reconciling those two. That who This is who God is. And this is what God is about to do. How can God use a more wicked, nasty nation to judge a more righteous nation than that? 
how can God allow the Chaldeans to boast over him and over his people and over his city? It'll be useful, we encourage you to consider as we continue our exploration in Habakkuk chapter 2, that yes, God is going to give an answer to this question. And God is going to explain things to Habakkuk. But it's also good to kind of be like Habakkuk there and have to sit on the watchpost. And we don't know how long God made him sit on the watchpost or the amount of time that passed between when Habakkuk formulated his, his, his concerns and when Yahweh actually responded. But it's good to sit and stew for the, in that for a minute. Because Habakkuk will get a response. But how many times do we experience a disconnect as well between what we know to be true about God and the reality on the ground? For instance, we know that God is our creator, that he is the three in one, that he is love, and that he wants to restore us to him. In John 1, John 17, Romans 5, 1 John 4, 8. But we have questions, right? Why does sin exist? Where is God in spite of all the suffering that we see? How can he continue to allow all of this sin to take place? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? All of these questions and, and many more. Habakkuk's own issues are still questions that we have, right? How can a good God use evil for his purposes and for his advantage? One thing that's very important to keep in mind through all this is that Habakkuk maintains his faith. And Habakkuk, we should not imagine, is willing to doubt to the point to can think that maybe God actually isn't who he says he is. Habakkuk never doubts God about this. Habakkuk is just having a hard time making sense of it all. Habakkuk does not retreat into unbelief. And that's something important for us to remember as Christians, that we are commanded and exhorted to maintain our faith and trust in God, despite the fact many things are difficult for us to understand. In John 6, when Jesus has talked about eating his body and drinking his blood, and many walk away from him, he turns to the twelve and says, are you going to go away as well? And we, in this very important little moment there in John six sixty six through 69 Peter says, "Who to whom would we go? We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God and that you have the words of eternal life. And the same Peter in his letter, 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, talks about the fact that the things like, for instance, that Paul wrote, uh, there are some things that are very difficult to understand. That in both of these cases, Peter is not a, a saying that we're going to have complete clarity. Uh, Peter is not basing all of this purely on knowledge. Instead, uh, Peter has enough knowledge to know that Jesus is who he says he is. And therefore, everything that Peter does not know and does not understand is a place where Peter will trust Jesus. And this is important because we're going to have to come to grips between, between the difference that from our vantage point, between what we know about God and what we see on the ground. Because at some point, our knowledge and understanding will fail. No, There's only so much that we can know and understand. And so the question is, will we be willing 
and will we prove to put our trust in God in Christ? Or are we going to turn away from them and make a God out of our own understanding uh, in order to try to smooth everything over to make it feel better for us and make a God out of that? And that's the danger that we continually find ourselves in when grappling with these questions. So Habakkuk may have legitimate grievances. Yahweh's aware of it. And he's going to judge with a vengeance. So Habakkuk is left to wonder about how it all can make sense, but yet he continues to trust in God. And so we can learn a lot from what uh, God has made known to Habakkuk here, that we should be careful what we ask for, to recognize that God is going to accomplish justice and render judgment in ways right to him, even if we think it's unpleasant, and that we need to continually trust in God's goodness and his covenant loyalty and his love for us. May we serve God in Christ, lest, as Paul says, we... uh, have happened to us according to what the prophets warned about, uh, about the unbelievable work that God could do against us. And we're so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been encouraged by our exploration here in the beginning of Habakkuk. If you have any questions about things we've discussed, uh, although if it's about what's going to happen in chapter 2, hang tight. We'll talk about that in, a, in another opportunity. Uh, perhaps you want to learn more about Jesus, maybe you want to talk about something else. Maybe you have a prayer request. Maybe there's something we can do to encourage you. Please let us know. Please contact me through our website deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com or uh, you can find out more about the Venice Church of Christ. Uh, you can contact us. Uh, perhaps you'd like to have a Bible study. Uh, you can learn more about uh, the Bible studies going on uh, in our area at westsidebiblestudies.com or on meetup at Westside Bible Studies. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the Venture to Christ, we're at VenturesChrist.org and also on uh, relevant social media, uh, Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.